Uh, well, good morning. Thanks for coming out during this uh, crazy time of COVID. It's good to be here. Uh, my wife and I, again, we're, uh, we're field missionaries in, in northern Iraq. We've been in the field for about 20 years now. Uh, late August of uh, 2014, uh, we rolled into northern Iraq uh, three weeks after ISIS declared the caliphate and, uh, and never left. Uh, so we're, um, we're good. Thanks, man. So I want to uh, thank you, first of all, for your, uh, your prayers. Uh, we need them. Imagine it's a tough neighborhood. I don't know if you can see that, but what I, what I covered this morning, and please, this great time for questions. Um, we're, we're in a security-sensitive area, so we can't usually say a lot by email. Uh, we talk a lot in code, and we're encrypted. Um, this is a good opportunity where I can pretty much say a lot. Um, I don't think anybody here is Muslim Brotherhood. We're okay. Um, I did have a church in Virginia get sloppy with our security, and there was a backpack bomber waiting for me, sitting right there in the pew till Homeland Security showed up. Um, so, but again, it's a great, please, let's make this a, a dialogue. So if you have questions about the stuff we're talking about, let's do it. Um, I want to talk today a little bit about the, the global impact of COVID. Um, the economic lockdown has been far worse than COVID itself. Uh, I want to talk about what that's looked like overseas. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about um, impact of COVID on churches in the U.S. I think the bottom line, the punchline there is COVID is accelerating trends we are seeing coming about. It's coming fast. The direction we were going in is coming about faster. Um, we'll talk a little bit about refugees, and if you have questions, again, we have 80 million refugees right now on the planet, highest number in history, um, and a completely broken global refugee system. So we'll talk a little bit about them. And the big thing I want you to walk out of here today is knowing what God is doing and so we are seeing this incredible move of God across the planet right now. And I'll show you some numbers. We've been saying for years that this is going to come to the U.S. and the West because globally we're following Jesus' principles. The principles are going to work in any context because they're his principles for disciple making. And so we're beginning to see, and we've been promising this is going to happen for years, and now we have the data to back it up that what we're seeing globally is beginning to happen in the U.S. So the fastest growing Christian country in the world is Iran. Uh, China, 10,000 baptisms a day. Uh, Indonesia, largest Muslim nation on the planet. The numbers are in a generation it will be majority Christ follower. Uh, so most people don't know about this. And it's incredibly good news. And we need to learn from it because it's coming here. So does that sound okay? We were going to do it anyway. I just wanted to take your fall. I don't really care. I'm just, uh, um, so again, just a little bit about us. Uh, that was me with hair before we had teenagers. Um, we've been in the field since uh, 2003. Uh, we still support, we went to Tanzania first. We still have uh, three orphanages there, about 400 kids we support. Um, we're working on disciple-making movements. Remember this term. Remember two terms, though. So when you hear DMM, this is the big thing. It's the thing God is doing that's coming here. Uh, so disciple-making movements. And then as missionaries, we talk about UPGs, unreached people groups. So 3.2 billion people on the planet have no access to the gospel. 80% uh, of Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims will never meet a Christ follower in their lifetime. Okay? And only 3% of missionaries go to the Islamic world with 1.8 billion souls. So you're looking at a, a 3%er here right now. 
So we're going to talk about that. Um, our focus is on the least, and we, Stacy praying for a Yazidi widow. Um, least for us are uh, widows, orphans, and, and refugees, and then least for each people groups. Um, and we'll talk about uh, DMMs. Um, well, I'll push through that a little bit. Just share a little bit about um, uh, northern Iraq right now. Um, we still have one million refugees from ISIS left over six years later. They have about 45 minutes from our house and 38 camps. UN camps are horrible. No food. They don't provide any food. No real basic medical care. Schools are terrible. Uh, the Yazidi have been intense for six years. Um, and power a few hours a day. Imagine being in a tent when it's 130 degrees outside and no fan. Uh, that's what our life like is like there. Uh, the average stay in a UN camp globally is 18 years. So we are in it for the long haul with them. We promise to stay as long as they're, they're in camp. Um, the greatest single need that we have found for the Yazidi people, anybody, you've heard of them, right? We've, we talked about them before. They were the ones who went up on the mountaintop and the U.S. had to rescue as ISIS was trying to genocide them. There's a million Yazidi people on the planet and about 750,000 are in UN uh, refugee camps right now. Their greatest single need is trauma care. Uh, ISIS was the 74th genocide against them. So they had PTSD before ISIS. And then we have girls 10 years old who were sold back and forth between ISIS members for five years. So, uh, so bringing the kingdom of God there, we see the greatest single need is, is trauma care for them. We can't do anything else with them being broken. And, and talking about recovery with, with such brokenness. And uh, it it's, it's, hasn't happened because it's, it's, it tends to be quite expensive. It's complicated. So our job there, our goal has been to create a way of doing sustainable, replicable, affordable trauma care on a broad scale. And so that's kind of the way we attack a big problem. Um, some of you know our story. We were in Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans and our little church with uh, 40 members, $60,000 total budget for the whole year. It was just like, it was 40 cranky old white ladies uh, in an all black neighborhood. It was like a church of Alter Guild in a black neighborhood. Uh, they're awful. And um, uh, we went on to run the second largest, longest running relief operation for all of Hurricane Katrina. Uh, we had 130,000 people in our, our, through our parking lot. We, we went through 300 gallons of bleach an hour for three years. And um, uh, Harvard Kennedy School studied us for five years because we ended up having the highest rate of resident return. 93% 90, of residents returned with the lowest median income, $10,000 a household. And so for five years, the Kennedy study, with no government aid, zero public dollars. So the academic question for Harvard was, how did you do it? Because we had neighborhoods with $150,000 median income with 40% return. And they, they came to the conclusion, which they hated, which was the church saved New Orleans. And our, what we did was locally come up with a way to do it, and make it replicable, and then make it open source for the rest of the city to follow the plan. And that's what we're doing in northern Iraq, is creating, we're experimenting, we're finding a way to do this affordably, sustainably, and make everything we do in the field has to be cheap and replicable. If it's, if it's not cheap and not replicable, we don't do it. And so that, that's what we're working on with the Yazidi right now. 
So uh, just, uh, you can see, uh, we have a documentary out on the work in northern Iraq, which uh, has won uh, awards all over the world. Uh, I think we've won six international film festivals. And um, who knew? Uh, it's short, it's about 55 minutes, uh, called Don't Forget Them. And uh, you can go to our website, Love for the Least. There's an opportunity to see it end of the month coming up. Oh, just, is that just passed? We're past that, right? Go to our, the next one will be up on the website. General release will be in December. It'll be a way for you to see it. But um, we'll skip that. And we're stuck. Technical help. There we go. All right. Talk about the world again a little bit. Um, we talked about 40% of the world's people groups have no access to the gospel. 3.2 billion people. And they tend to live in what we call the 1040 window. Do you all know that? Okay, good. So 10 degrees north of the equator to 40 degrees north, West Africa through Asia, is the best way to describe where these 3.2 billion people live, including 1.8 billion Muslims. Um, uh, you can see that. I'll tell it off to you. So there are about 17,000 people groups, and 7,400 still remain unreached. All right. Um, again, 9 out of 10 missionaries go to already reached people groups. And I want to say that, why do we talk about people groups? Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all ethnes, nations, people groups. Borders change. Like, we don't even know the borders of Syria anymore. Um, people groups don't change. They're static. And within countries, we have multiple people groups. Just think in the U.S. If I was going to plant a church, it would be very different in New York than it would be in central Texas where we have a house, right? So we, have to th we think in terms of people groups because that helps us really focus on that particular group of people, their language, their culture, and how do we make the gospel, how do we present the gospel in ways they can understand culturally. So the focus, again, is on, is on people groups. Um, one challenge, why, is, why do we have 3.2 billion unreached? Well, a big part of it is um, the U.S. gives five pennies on the dollar to the Great Commission the thing Jesus said to do, and we keep 95% back home. And then we give one half of one penny to the 3.2 billion. So we're sending one half of one penny to the 3.2 billion. We're sending one out of 10 missionaries, only 3% to the Middle East. And then here's the rub. Um, we don't like what goes on in that part of the world, and we really don't like when it comes here. But the problem is we haven't been going and we haven't been sending, and we haven't been sustaining. That's, the, that's the, the rub of it. Here's a big problem. Only 17% of regularly attending, every Sunday attending evangelicals in the U.S. know and understand the Great Commission. The thing Jesus said to do. Go and make disciples who make disciples. That's a problem. That's an obedience problem. Um... Obedient disciples bring the kingdom of God. So why does this all matter? Well, it's the whole purpose of the church. It's what Jesus said to do. It's out of love and mercy. It's the heart of God overflowing in us for those people. Um, finding a lost makes God happy. I want to wake up in the morning and make God happy this day. You know, that's kind of how I start my day. And it brings the kingdom of God. We'll talk about this in the sermon. But it's the kingdom of God that will solve our problems. There, there, I'll tell you, if this is not a secret. There is no political, diplomatic, or military solution to the Middle East. We've tried it all. 
the best we can do is maybe mitigate some stuff. The only thing that can fix the Middle East is the kingdom of God. And we're seeing it in small scale. Um, I'll talk about COVID here a little bit. Um, the UN is reporting that from the COVID lockdown, 1.6 billion people cannot afford food right now. So I said the, the, the economic impact of the COVID shutdown is far worse than COVID itself. A hundred million people have fallen into permanent, severe, chronic poverty. 6,000 children die um, every day from lack of food and medicine because of the COVID economic lockdown. So where we work in East Africa, we have been doing nothing but food distribution as fast and hard as we can do it uh, in East Africa. With the refugees, again, the UN doesn't provide any food, so if they can't work, they don't eat. And so we, our little group, we just pivoted and become, we've become a food relief operator. There's no point in doing anything else if people are starving. So we stopped, we pivoted, and $50 feeds a family for a month. And we're a no overhead operation, so $50 on a Sunday goes over on Monday, and that becomes a box of food by Thursday or Friday going out. And we've been doing that since Friday. Uh, it's 100% passed through, and, and we've just been full throttle on getting food out right now. Uh, again, the most vulnerable we're seeing are uh, widows, children, especially the elderly. Finding really the, the elderly, because I've seen it in camps, even when food distribution even comes there, the elderly can't get into the food scrum. Have you thought about that? Because their tents are far away from the main center of the camp. So actually, we, we, um, when, the, when um, the U.S. pulled out of, Tur of Syria, the next day Turkey invaded and created 900,000 new refugees. I flew over. I was in the middle of the invasion. I, mean, I was in the combat zone looking for the refugees. And uh, so a new camp was set up, and the first thing we found was that, the, as we roamed around, was that the, the elderly couldn't get to the food. So we've been bringing deliveries to their tents, identifying all the elderly and making sure that they get, they get food. Again, 6,000 children are dying daily from lack of access to food and, and health care. I'll go skip over that. Um, and again, that's a Syrian Kurdish refugee we're delivering food to and, and her family. So $50 a month is a, a month's month supply of food staples. Talk about just the U.S. a little bit. Um, did I have that one? U.S. were... Okay. 80% of all churches in the U.S. were in flat or in decline before COVID. We had a problem before COVID. COVID's just accelerating things. And um, I'll just show the stats right now, just kind of what we're finding out there right now. Churches are running about 30 to 50 percent. Um, a third, it's kind of breaking into a rule of thirds, about a third of people are kind of staying with their existing church. Very interestingly, about 18 percent of people have changed churches during COVID. They have found others online that are speaking to them. Um, and about another third are kind of watching multiple churches right now. They're kind of uh, channel surfing churches on Sunday morning uh, where they're getting fed. And the, the breakdown there is basically what that's showing is that sort of the older you are, um, the more likely you are to stay engaged and be with it. Fifty percent of all millennials have dropped out of church altogether. Okay. And the other stat, and this falls into what we're going to talk about, um, if we look at the lay of the land and the data, 60 percent of all existing churches 
that we see right now will be gone within 15 years. Okay? But that's not necessarily um, a bad thing because there's a problem. There's a problem. Question, what does it cost to baptize an adult in the United States? Basically, the thing Jesus said to do. Go make disciples, baptize, teach, pray. The thing Jesus said to do. What is the average cost in the U.S. for one baptism? Anybody want to guess? I guess? 1.5 million. If you take all the church budgets and divide it by the number of adult baptisms, that's what you get. That's not sustainable. If you were running a company like this, you would be fired. Okay? So we have a model, it wasn't working, and COVID is just sort of accelerating that process right now. Um, so we're, um, we're, we were in decline, and now we have a, a new landscape out here. The, the world is going through uh, a change that's as big as the Industrial Revolution, okay? And, and we have to understand this. What, 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 Iraq is our third post-genocide work. You don't have to like the new normal, but you have to accept it. It's like working a geometry problem. You've got to accept the given or you can't work the problem. That's why I almost failed. I'm a philosopher by trade. And I wouldn't, answer, I wouldn't work the problem because I wasn't accepting the given. Because I needed to know how we got this given. And he says, just solve the stupid problem with the given. I can't do that. I need to know why. Or I'm not doing it. Okay. But that's what the, when a new landscape is out there, you need to understand it. When we worked in New Orleans, 60% of all churches in New Orleans did not make it through Hurricane Katrina. It was 60%. It wasn't from the storm damage. They survived the storm. They couldn't make sense of the new landscape. The 60% that closed were the ones who tried to go back to the way it was before Katrina. And we have this human nature tendency to double down on what we know, even if it's not working because it's comfortable for us. So I think what we're going to see here, there's some real positive things happening though right now, and I think what we're going to see is a lot less churches, but we have the potential for a lot more followers of Jesus. And how that's working is kind of the punchline. Um, the, 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 the big change we're seeing is institutions are dying out, and they're being replaced by networks. Okay, and that changes sort of everything. People don't go to institutions anymore for like their morality, for answers to big questions. They're going to networks. Look at Facebook, right? People form, they form networks. There are influencers there and, and, and they set their own morality. And if they don't like something, they swarm. They cancel you, right? Well, that's really how, how culture and society is fanning out right now. We're organizing ourselves in terms of networks People aren't looking to the church, institution, clergy anymore. You know, it's, it's, this is a big issue. The way we understand power is being diffused. If, if you have a, a phone camera and can post a video online, you can be powerful. Because people now, it's people who have influence have power, not position. People aren't looking for position, title, structures, institutions anymore. You have networks out there with people who can influence those networks. If we don't get that, we're going to miss the wave. And that's not, it's coming, it's already here. We're there. But what this opens up, incredible new pathways for discipleship.
Because the gospel moves fastest when it, when it gets into people's natural way of communicating. Instead of kind of come here and do this, it's we're going to share the gospel with you and let you move it out among your people the way you know how to do it. Does it make sense? So, for example, with the, the Kurds, it's not my job to figure out how they're going to move the gospel. My job is to share the gospel and disciple them and then let them figure out how to do it. Like in East Africa, bush communication moves faster than the email. I mean, I literally could fall out of bed at night in Tanzania, and before I hit the floor, they knew seven villages down the road. I, I just couldn't believe how fast they move information. You know, we had these big meetings, and everybody showed up, and like we didn't advertise. They knew how to, they knew how to do it. So again, as we learn to work in these networks, the gospel can move very fast because you're letting people do it in a natural, comfortable way for them. Make sense? As opposed to kind of come here and do it this way, relearn a whole new skill set, do it how you know how to do it. So I, I, there's a lot of upside here. Again, I just mentioned about New Orleans, and I think that's just a huge wake-up call for us that we, we better understand the new landscape, make, start making sense of this new environment um, if we don't want to be in the 60% that close. I don't have time for all that. Um, all right, so let's talk about the, this ties into disciple-making. Go, therefore, and build buildings, inviting people to come to your church and join your denomination, said Jesus, never. He never said it. He never said big church members. Ever. You know, we've been doing something else and then wondering why it's not working. It's because we're not following his principles, his playbook, the way he's doing it. So this is what I want to kind of land on. And again, if you have questions, I've fired hosed you. Um, if you walk out of here today, I want you to get this. Disciple-making movements or kingdom movements. Um, the missionary world, especially in the 1040 window, is we are very networked. We are very studied. Um, you would believe the depth to it. Incredible amount of information moving around among us. And so I wanted to share that what I'm sharing with you is ontological. I'm not prescribing it. I'm just describing to you what God is doing. And that's what we're doing right now. We're just watching globally what is God doing. Michelangelo said the sculpture was in the rock. You just had to carve it out. And that's kind of how we're approaching this right now. Is it's there. We're watching for... So we're looking for... What we're looking specifically, I'm kind of inviting you behind the curtain, is as we look across the planet, particularly of interest to us are what are the the constants, the universals. What are the things we're seeing God do in um, Indonesia, in Iran, in China, in Africa, in Middle East? They're just the same across the board. And when we identify those things, what does that tell us? We should be doing them, right? So there's, in, in, in the world of making disciples, are what are the things we, we have to be doing? They're universals, regardless of culture, and then the other piece of it, the tricky part, is how do we make it work in this culture? And you have to figure that out. So I don't have that answer for you for Waco. I can tell you, though, the things that if we want to be obedient to Jesus and make disciples who make disciples and bring the kingdom of God, these are the things you absolutely have to do. But then there's that piece of it is how do we make this work and make sense in Waco? And that's the hard work that missionaries do. So, for example, we're working with the Yazidi people in the movement world, there are two 800-pound gorillas, both named David. Uh, one is our coach, and the other one writes a lot of books. 
And uh, the guy who wrote the books, um, I was in Colorado Springs, and he said, I heard you're in town. I want to meet you. Why? Uh, just this little Anglican priest who hangs out with refugees. And he said, well, we've gotten wind that you're doing like the first gospel work with the Yazidi people. They had never heard the gospel until 2014 when ISIS flushed them off the mountain into the camps. And we want to hear, hear about it. And I said, well, I can tell you what not to do. And he said, that's helpful. We're building the knowledge base. Like, let's get that on paper so we know what not to do. So a lot of it is trial and error. Um, one of the things we find with the Yazidi, Muslim, we know what a, what a Muslim follower of Jesus is supposed to kind of look like. There's been about 30 good years of Muslim ministry going on. We kind of have a pretty good idea about them. We have absolutely no idea what a Yazidi follower of Jesus is going to look like. Because also, it's not my job to structure the church. We leave that to the Holy Spirit and the Word. I don't dictate, I'm not dictating what a Zanzibari Christian is supposed to look like or a Zanzibari church. That's not my job. They'll figure that out with God. My job is to get them in the Word, listening to God, being led by the Holy Spirit. And then they sort it out. Make sense? That's kind of how we approach it. So with the Yazidi, they're very interesting. Um, they worship a peacock. Okay? We're working on it. And um, we bumped into this issue with them that they were... Muslims take a time, unless they've had a dream or a vision. 30% um, of Muslims who come into the kingdom come from a dream or a vision of Jesus. Like, I know these people. They're my friends. And it's not like a picture of Jesus. They have met Jesus. You can't tell me that God doesn't love Muslims because he's showing up on their doorstep, calling them in, you know, right now. So they, they, they kind of, though, it takes them a while where they'll move Jesus sort of next to the prophet, all right? And then our rule with them is just don't talk about the prophet. We don't talk, just ignore the prophet, let Jesus get big, the prophet will get small. We don't pick a fight. It's the same with the Quran. We just don't even talk about it. But if they're reading the Bible, eventually the Quran will fall off. So we've learned not to be combative with them. The Yazidi are interesting. They, they're syncretistic. They just collect stuff. They are so fast to move Jesus next to the peacock. But then we get stuck, you know, because they'll say, and they do this, they're very interesting. They will say, I love Jesus. I am obeying Jesus. Uh, but I still worship the Lord Taok. That's the peacock. Like they poke at you. And that's their way of saying, the poke is their way of saying, I'm still a Yazidi. And so we pulled back and said, what do we do about this? And we said, well, let's, I mean, we're pioneering. We're inventing this. So we said, let's take the Muslim approach. Let's ignore the peacock. I mean, at least Muhammad like existed. This is a picture of a peacock. It is no match for Jesus. Okay. So we said, just ignore the peacock. And what we found with them over time is they'll say, I love Jesus and the Lord Taoist. Like the energy was gone. The poke went away. And then we find if we just stick with that, like we haven't heard about the peacock for months. We just let the peacock go away because Jesus just got bigger in their lives. But that's the contextual stuff you have to work for. But so we're talking about movements. I want to get this definition down with you. It's a little hard to understand. Those are three Kurds we baptized, by the way. If our neighbor's uh, around, we baptize in the living room. And if the neighbor's gone, we can baptize in our pool in the front yard. Uh, so that was an outdoor day. The neighbors were gone. All right, so we're talking about global disciple-making movements. This is the thing God is doing. It's coming to the U.S. You've got to know this. 
we define a movement is where we see uh, in an unreached area over five to seven years, a hundred church plants that have multiplied at least four times and are continuing to multiply. So our only metric for success in the movement world is multiplication. We, we, we would not consider a, a, a healthy church plant a church even. It's not even a church yet until it is multiplying. You know, we get excited about like four new families a month walking in the door here. We don't even pay any attention to that. We want to see churches. We want to see multiplication. So that's the definition of a movement. All right, these are the new numbers. By the way, that's top picture of the UK. There's a little tiny church in, in uh, Derby in the UK I'm coaching. And in one year, this church is smaller than you guys. They've baptized 300 Kurdish Muslims in their community. Uh, and it's rolling like wildfire. So, okay, so 18 months ago, we meet every 18 months. Secret is we meet in Malta. They lock us in a hotel. We're not allowed to communicate or leave, and we kind of spill the beans. The missionaries in the Middle East can kind of get to Malta easily, so that's where we meet. The last numbers were 18 months ago. We just got new numbers about three weeks ago. We couldn't meet this year because of COVID. So 18 months ago, we had 708 certified movements. Today, we have... 1,369. That's just in 18 months. And certified means they are counted. We send, if you wave, put your hand up and say you have a movement going, the next thing we do is send in a team of sociologists and people to come count you. Why? Because there's a lot of nonsense in the mission world. Like if you read, watch the internet, like the entire country of Nigeria has been saved 500%. Okay, we have to get it right because we're studying this, we're learning. We need good data because we're going to make decisions based on the data. So the data has to be good. You follow me? All right, that's just 18 months ago. Uh, 2,900 were being watched 18 months ago. We're now watching 4,589. And here's my favorite one. 18 months ago, we were looking at seven movements in North America and Europe combined, seven Today, there are 118 in Europe and 31 in the U.S. We've been saying for years, it's coming here. These are Jesus' principles. And what's happening are the missionaries are coming home. Yeah? Um, in, in, in Europe, predominantly refugee. So, for example, in Germany... We have colleagues there. They cannot keep up with the number of Muslim refugees coming into the kingdom. We hear all the time from the Kurds, I can't follow Jesus here, but the second I get to Europe, I'm in. I just can't do it here. It's not safe for me. They're kind of ready. Um, in the U.S., they're pretty diversified. Lubbock has one going on. Uh, there's a big one in, in suburban Kansas City. White suburban soccer moms kind of country that we're seeing a movement emerge there as well. And what's happening are the missionaries are coming home and teaching churches in the U.S. how to do this stuff. That's, that's the dynamic that's going on right now. We're just sharing these things that we're learning that God is doing. Uh, but very interestingly, like in Europe, uh, I asked our, our leader there for Muslim ministry in Europe. I, said, I think we all know that the church is dead as a doornail in Europe, right? We all agreed? If that's new information. Sorry, it's true. Like Scotland is less than 1% Christian. Wales less than 1%. And it's just, France is a disaster. And I ask, could, is it, because I think this way, is it possible that the renewal of the church in Europe is going to come through the Muslim refugees? 
And he said, that's exactly what we're seeing. So when you think of European Christian right now, you might think of some old Danish lady outside a chapel in Copenhagen, right? And really start thinking 10 years from now, when you think European Christian, it's going to be a Muslim follower of Jesus. We're also seeing these principles working very well with Hispanics. Discovery Bible study is the core of it, and that's doing very well in Hispanic communities in the U.S., West Coast especially. Yeah. Great question. So how, do, how does this thing structure itself? We actually have a very high ecclesiology. Very high. We think the church matters. Just as an aside for Anglicans, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but um, I'll tell you, that I'm going to get to your question, like stay, stay with me. Um, we have a group of Muslims that are Yazidi, okay, and we're walking them through discipleship, and then at some point, they, they decide they want to be baptized, okay, and we do that, we baptize them. So now we have a group of baptized Christ followers, but they're not yet at church. What we have to do with them then is we meet, and they have to decide if they want to become a church. And so we, what do we do? We take them to Scripture, and particularly Acts 2. And we go through the Bible and say, what, what are the marks of a church? What does a church do? And you, so to do those, if you agree to do those things, you can begin celebrating Lord's Supper. That's the mark that they have become a church. What's real interesting, just to tell you, as Anglicans, is the movement world started with this kind of crazy mix of Pentecostals and Baptists. And then the Baptists mostly got kicked out of the Baptist church because they weren't planting Baptist churches. So our coach actually invented Discovery Bible Study, which is kind of the basis of it. He went to an unreached part of India, totally unreached, missionary graveyard. They've had over 12 million baptisms among this people group. But he was kicked out of the Baptist conference because they weren't Baptist churches. Okay, happens. So it's this funny mix of Baptist roadkill and Pentecostals. Across the board, Indonesia, Iran, China, where we are, when we get them into, the, into Scripture, study in church, one absolute thing they come to is the necessity of Lord's Supper. They will not meet without having communion. They won't even think about it. Like their heads would explode if you were to suggest doing it once a month. But one of the things I share is that as they've, they've walked through this whole process, when they've come and baptized, become a church, the one thing they have never seen in that journey is a church member. And we know from studying this, the second that they come into an existing church building, they stop multiplying because they learn how to become church members. So I help pastor a surface evangelical church in Iraq, but what I do, and I, I'm in the parking lot chasing away new people before they come in. I don't want them in there. This is for sort of existing believers. If they come in here, they will stop multiplying. And I'll just say, we love you, and I want to come to your house this week, what night? And I'll share with you. Bring your family, but I don't want you in here. Okay, now to get to your question. We kind of do it in reverse in the U.S. Um, we send, like, guys off to seminary for three years, and they collect $100,000 in debt, 
and then 50% of them are out of ministry within the first three years. Okay? Um, I love bishops. They're great. But we have bishops who don't have actually the spiritual gift of apostolic leader. They were just, they're nice and they were elected and they're great. God love them. But they actually don't function in that gift. In the U.S., most pastors don't have the gift of pastoring. They tend to be teachers. Okay? We're totally out of sync with Scripture. If you look at the, the, the sequence that's always in Scripture is that we have an apostolic leader first, right? And they always, what's the number two? Always in Scripture. What's number two? Right after apostolic leader, prophet. Where's the role of the prophetic in the church? That's number two. It always goes with apostolic leader. And then comes uh, teachers, evangelists, pastors. Okay? We're out of sync with God's plan for the church. And then we wonder why it's not going well. Okay? Look at how we do things in the U.S. again. The, I'm an Anglican priest, ACNA, love it, all good, card-carrying member. But look how we do it. We send guys off to plant churches, and they plant these kind of small churches, and then we get enough of them, and then they elect a bishop and become a diocese. There is no New Testament pattern for that. None. That was never done that way. First, an apostolic leader missionary went into an area, made disciples, and then raised up the fivefold ministry from within it. Apostle, prophet, teacher, evangelist, pastor. So to answer your question again, what we do is if we see somebody who is running a healthy group, what are they? A pastor. By definition, pastors run small groups. If somebody is a rabid planter of groups, we have a Kurd, a Muslim follower of Jesus. He has planted a thousand churches. What do we call him? An apostolic leader, right? So because he's got downline. So what we do is we watch and we bless what God is doing instead of sending somebody off to seminary and hope they can do it. So we're actually very tightly structured. We just do it in a different way. We have it all there. We have apostolic leaders, we have pastors, we have teachers, evangelists, etc. But we, we, we do it more organically. Make sense? Okay. That was a great question. Loved it. So um, just talk about these movements real quick. Uh, about five minutes left. Um, an average movement has 56,000 believers. A third of them, that's a sideways dunk in our front yard. Um, uh, a third of these movements are among Muslims. They have um, spawned 4.8 million new churches across the world. One question somebody, people always ask me is, how big is a church? Anybody thinking that? Like define church. In our world, church is the number of people who can meet in a house without getting in trouble. So in, where we were in the Islamic Revolutionary Republic, great place, um, they don't, we were there five years and were never invited to somebody's house for dinner. They just don't do that. They live in their little Hudson houses and they don't visit. They just kind of keep to themselves. So in that context, four or five in a house is the maximum. Anything more than that, we're going to get in trouble. Now in Kurdistan, on the other hand, all they do is go to each other's houses, smoke, drink coffee, and set things on fire. I mean, that's what Kurds do. They blow things up and smoke. And so... It, it, like 35 people at a house is not uncommon. 
So when we have house church or do baptisms, we can have 35, 40, and the secret police isn't worrying about what we're doing at all. So that's, that's the size of what we're calling a church. It's the, the number that can comfortably meet without getting in trouble in a house. All right, that's kind of our um, uh, way of doing it. I just want to show you this. This is Iran. I just love this picture. We have a, a movement going on in Iran right now, a wing that's doing really well. That is the home of a senior Islamic leader in Iran, deep in Iran. I guess it pays well because he has a pool in his house. His son is a secret believer, so when dad goes out of town, we use the pool for baptisms. That's just a few weeks old. That picture came in from, from our guys over there. So um, just talking about a better way is not make church members, but make disciple makers. So everybody, everybody, and this goes to your question again, I think, is everyone has to be being discipled by someone and you're always discipling somebody else. My question is, who is discipling you and who are you discipling? Because it's, you know, we don't exist for ourselves. I think we start understanding the gospel when we have this epiphany that it's not about us. If you, get to the, if you start realizing that it's not about me, you're starting to get the gospel. So then questions about the carpet color and changing light bulbs don't become that important anymore because it's not about us. You're starting to get the gospel. Again, multiplication gets in their, their DNA from day one. I mean, all we have the new believer, the Muslims. I mean, I, I can take a group of Muslims. On week one, first meeting, I can get them to have an obedience point to Jesus for the week and a commitment to share the lesson with other Muslims. I can do that on the first meeting with them. We don't have that, that sense here of doing that. So they're going out, Muslims are going out every week being obedient to Jesus and sharing about Jesus. They'll do it on the first meeting. The Yazidi will do it on the first meeting. And again, it's, it's the big paradigm shift getting movements is we're going from, from head knowledge to obedience. The problem in the U.S. is, man, we love studying. We have our Bible studies and our DVD sets. And, you know, Bible studies in the U.S. are mostly I come and gather some information, I learn some more, and that's nice, and I'm done. How's that working? We have a lot of head knowledge, but not a lot of obedience. You know, I'm happy with a Muslim having, like, knowing two things. You know, we just have a lot more stuff to disobey. They don't know a lot, but we want them to obey the little that we're spoon-feeding them, getting them to practice obedience to Jesus weekly. This whole global shift, this whole paradigm shift right now is going from head knowledge-based discipleship, information-based discipleship, to obedience-based discipleship, obeying Jesus every week with a new obedience point. That's the, par that's, the, that's the paradigm shift that's going on right now globally. Um, so what is this? So better. So, so good questions. I can land the plane on this maybe. Is, is this, these are the questions we ask ourselves all the time. Us, me and Stacy, and our group. Is Does it make disciples? Does it deepen discipleship? Does it expand the kingdom of God? Is it sustainable? Can it easily replicate? You know, my goal for a discipleship lesson is the dumbest person in the group can go out and teach it. If the dumbest person in the group cannot go out and replicate it, it's not a good lesson. Easily replicable, easily sustainable. And so we're always asking ourselves, if it's not making disciples, because that's the goal, who make disciples, we just stop doing it. Because that's not what we're supposed to be doing. 
Any questions? I firehosed you. I don't think I have anything good left here. Yeah, um, no, just this last one. This is very intentional. Groups matter a lot. You, you cannot be a serious follower of Jesus coming to church on Sunday and that's it. Not possible. We, ha- we need each other. We have to be accountable. We have to be sharing our lives with other people. That's the heart of it, getting them in groups. Um, the, the, it's Bible engagement affects every other discipline. And there's a deep connection between discipleship and evangelism, but it's really Bible engagement that leads to making disciples. Okay. Any last questions? So we talked about COVID's horrible. Um, Things are changing in the U.S. very rapidly. And pastors are going to be more in the future um, influencers of networks and connectors of networks. The job, our job now is to learn how to speak with spiritual authority into networks. That's the change that's coming. We better learn how to do that. And then there's this amazing thing happening that God is doing. Um, and, and we're starting to see churches get it and start implementing these things. And we're beginning to see some real fruit uh, in the West. And it's really exciting. Anything else? The deer in the headlights, shock and awe. Just shoot me an email and I'll send it right to you. I'll send you the link. Yeah, absolutely. I don't put out anything that's uh, unsafe. So this is all public domain. I've, I've said some things I wouldn't say publicly, but I don't put anything on paper that you know, can end up anywhere. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They probably morph into networks of their own. And, and like an example, in, in discipleship groups, we have, um, you know, honestly, the best people at doing discovery Bible study are the least educated and illiterate. They're amazing. Like we look, turn our nose down at oral culture. <laughs> they have a much deeper command of information than we do. They're amazing working in oral culture. And the problem is sort of the more educated you get, you just have more stuff in your head that's probably not helpful. And so I find sort of the poorer people are, the less educated they are, even the more illiterate they are. They actually do better at this stuff. But I think more they're going to form into their own kind of networks and they need to be approached where they are. So like we have groups for the illiterate, we have groups for the literati, you know, and we kind of put them where they, they belong. Does that answer your question? So we kind of meet them where they are. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing, the reason why, yeah, it was a good question. If we find somebody in a group who is a sharer, about 20% of people are sharers. What we do is we harvest them out because they're going to get bored in a group and have them start planting new groups. That's how the groups multiply. Is you find the, I can't make a sharer. I know one when I have one. I have never in 20 years been able to turn somebody into a sharer. We get them as they are. So you find the sharers, the 20%, and you move them out of the group, planting new groups. And you just leave the other ones alone. They're fine, they're nice, they form a church, they're wonderful. Leave them alone, they're great. <laughs> but we identify the sharers and pull them out and get them doing what they like to do, 
which is plant new groups. I think we're time. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate it.